Natalie, how's everything going? Everything's great. I'm so excited to chat with you again. Yeah. Uh, where are you in the world right now? So I live in Los Angeles. I live very close to the beach in Los Angeles. Well, there's a lot of beach in Los Angeles, so I, 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 I guess that doesn't exactly uh, dox you or anything <laughs> like that. So, uh, so you, Natalie, you, you've uh, like sort of burst onto the Bitcoin scene all of a sudden. I feel like um, nobody knew who you were, at least in the Bitcoin world. And then all of a sudden you're doing like all these interviews. Can you tell us the story a little bit of what happened? How, how'd you get into this industry and everything else? Like what, wh what's the deal? Sure. So I have been an investor in Bitcoin since 2017. And um, it's something that I didn't really know about when I first bought in. I didn't go down the rabbit hole immediately. I wish I had. Um, and then someone, I went down the rabbit hole because a mentor in my life gave me the Bitcoin standard. And um, basically said, you should really look into this and read about it and how it could change our future. And prior to that, you know, I've been a journalist for more than 10 years. So uh, my worldview wasn't in the finance space or investment. Uh, and to be honest with you, I feel like I've always just been stressed out about money because I come from an immigrant background and I feel like I'm always... I feel like I'm, it's it's so hard to plan for the future, especially today. And if you know anything about the journalism industry, very few people make a lot of money and everyone else makes very, very little. It's very hard to get by, especially when you're like making your way up. So um, I read the Bitcoin standard and I was, I felt like my, the veil was lifted off my eyes and I was like, oh my God, why didn't I know this information before? Why didn't I understand how the monetary system works? holy moly, this information has been hiding in plain sight. So I just started digging into everything I could possibly find. Every book, every YouTube video, um, every podcast. And I was just devouring information about both Bitcoin and economics and our, our money system here in this country. And I had already had a podcast. Um, so I was a journalist and also a podcaster. And I was interviewing people mainly in the media landscape about their career paths and like success stories. Cause I've always loved biographies and I've always loved like, how did people get to be where they are? You know, where did they mm -hmm. come from? What obstacles did they overcome? Did they face adversity? Why are they the way that they are and how did they achieve success? So my podcast was called Career Stories. And when I got super fascinated with this space, I basically said, oh my gosh, I should interview these big Bitcoin people about like how they got to be where they are and why they have such conviction for Bitcoin and I could learn from them, you know? So I just started, I didn't even know if it would if it would happen or work, I started to reach out to people like yourself and, you know, Peter McCormick, Pompliano, Robert Breedlove, Max Kaiser, Ma Michael Saylor. And I just, I was honest. I said, you know, I just want to learn about your life. I'm putting together this series and I just want to talk to you about why you believe in Bitcoin, how you discovered it and, and about your career path and how you found success. So um, people were kind enough to say yes. And I launched those interviews the week before or the week of the Bitcoin conference. And it just like took off. Um, it found an audience pretty quickly. And um, people really like to hear your backstories. They love you guys. You know, a lot of a lot of you have been followed and you've risen in this space and you're, you're legends in your own right. And, uh, and it's been really nice that there's been such support and you guys have been so generous with your time with me because I learned from all of you. So it's been a great experience. Well, I mean, you're one of the new legends coming in with the 21, 21 crew. So um, speaking of that, you, you mentioned a little bit that you come from an immigrant background and that you have 10 years of experience in the broadcast journalism industry. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into that as an immigrant? And um, let's talk about the monetary side as well, because you, you also mentioned that most people in this industry don't make very much. So, you know. Why go into it? So let's hear the story. What, what, what made you go into this thing? And, uh, you know, what was your experience in it like? Yeah, my poor parents. They definitely wanted me to go be a doctor uh, for sure. So um, we immigrated from Poland when I was five. Uh, it was basically my mom's dream to come here. She had the American dream. And uh, she. they both grew up in, in communist Poland before the, the curtain, the iron curtain fell. And... Uh, you know, I just would hear stories about how difficult life was. There was no sense of social mobility and they really wanted to give their kids access to good education and a, and a society and a system where if you work hard, you can move up, 
right? And you can save for the future and your destiny is decided by you and not anybody else. So um, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Chicago and my parents worked really, really hard and money was it just was always tough. Um, mm. And, you know, my parents, I really appreciated this. They, it's something I appreciated later because you don't know it when you're growing up, but they worked super hard um, and they, they basically moved to a suburb where we were essentially you know, among the families that didn't had the least amount of money, but it was in a suburb that had a lot of families that had a lot of money because it had a really mm -hmm. good school system. So I grew up with kids that, you know, had beautiful houses and we had this tiny apartment and I would go over and I just felt like, you know, what can I do in my life that like would make me feel like I have made it and I don't have to worry about money. Like money was always constantly a concern, but I fell in love with, um, with media. Like I grew mm -hmm. up watching, news and media, like television, movies, um, news in particular, because my parents were consumers of news and um, it helped them augment their English skills. So we always had the news mm -hmm. on. We would watch Barbara Walters and Diane Sawyer. And um, so I started to feel like I love this industry. I want to do something. I think it's amazing that these people get to interview, you know, people from around the world and travel and cover these amazing things. So and at the time, you know, like an average reporter, even in a small town, made a pretty good amount of money and mm. they had a camera crew and they had all this help. So it was a very different industry before the Internet kind of took over and social media changed the landscape. So mm. basically, um, I just I set out to go to school and become like a broadcast journalist or someone who's working in media. And um, when you go into that business, what most people don't know is you start in a very small town. And literally my job, my first job, I was making um, $30,000 a year. And mm. it was less than I think an internship that I had in high school. So this is like I graduated right into a recession. And then really my first job in the business was it, I made no money. I paid more in rent than, you know, than anything else. Um, and then I just climbed the ranks. I, I've covered literally anything and everything under the sun from fires and natural disasters to public corruption to, um, you know, elections and entertainment stories. I mean, anything and everything you are, it's baptism by fire. You are a reporter on the front lines of every issue. And I worked my way up. I worked my way up from a cub reporter in a tiny market, you know, an anchoring and stuff to a middle-sized market. I was in Sacramento in California. And then I made it to the national level with ABC News. And then I became an investigative reporter. Um, and so it's just been a really interesting journey. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely not as glamorous as people think when you're going into it. Uh, it's very, very difficult. And it's changed a lot because of social media. Well, so let's talk about that because uh, obviously, like uh, you know, twenty years ago is a very different industry than it is now, especially with widespread broadband and all that stuff, where you know you can watch anyone on YouTube at a moment's notice. So, how has that like sort of disrupted the broadcast journalism industry? Because obviously, you know, like people like Tim Pool get more views than you know, like than evening news on NBC or something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just transformed it in both good and bad ways. You know, um, right now, you it, the industry is so saturated. You could go anywhere you want. You could find your own little mini echo chamber. You can find the voices that speak whatever you want them to speak to you. Mm -hmm. And um, and a lot of those personalities have become really big names, especially online. But, you know, the news, I mean, people used to actually watch the evening news, right? They used to get millions and millions of viewers for just the evening news on, say, ABC or NBC. Now they're fighting, like they're fighting for a very small audience and it's dwindling and dwindling. And I know it's dwindling because I teach at a university now and even my students who want to go into journalism, they're not watching the programs that I grew up on. They're consuming everything on Twitter or on YouTube and, and some of these alternative platforms. And so it's really just disrupted the entire industry. And what that's caused is, you know, people are just not making as, as much, especially on the lower levels. And you have to do the job of like five people. So there have just been a ton of cuts. Um, and these networks are trying to save money. The advertising dollars are now spread across also digital and all these other platforms. So you know, you have to make cuts. So someone who used to have a cameraman and a producer and all that now is doing all of those jobs and probably making <laughs> less for it. So, uh, so that was very, so you're, very you're like literally doing a selfie shot or something like what, what's the deal? Oh yeah. For, for the majority of my career, I was what's known as a one man band or a one woman band where I shot, I edited, I produced, I wrote, and I was on camera. I did all of it. <laughs> 
Like you're doing everything. And it's funny because before that was only what you did in school. It was like, oh, you pay your dues or maybe you do that a little in your first job. No, now you're doing it in Los Angeles, in the national markets, like you are on your own. Um, so it's it's just completely changed. And, uh, and, and some people love it. And for some people, it's caused them to want to leave the industry. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very different than it once was. All right. So let's get into the dive into the economics a little bit, because you did mention advertisers and stuff like that. How does like a news media, you know, operation make money like or do they make money? How, how does it all work? And, uh, you know, what are the economics like? Yeah, I mean, you have to sell ads. Um, mm. So, so they're they're reliant. Um, election years are the best years because people are running their campaigns and purchasing commercial spots. Um, mm. So, those are always the years where we have a few more resources. Um, mm. But no, it's based on ads, and it's super funny because for a long time in my career, when I was working in local markets that were part of the affiliate groups, so like mm. affiliates of CBS, NBC, like the big mm -hmm. you know networks, they would have something known as sweeps, where mm. sweeps they're taking ratings about four times a year and their ad their ad sales and their ad revenue is based on their ratings that come in mm. during the sweeps period. And it's funny because reporters would dread the sweeps period because it means like all hands on deck, you're working twice as hard. Everyone's eyes are on you. You know, no mm. one can take a day off um, and you have to do special pieces and reports and stuff because sweeps were when essentially they were rating to see whether you're the top station or the bottom station, all that. I've been pretty lucky in my career that somehow I ended up always at the station that was the top operated. So it was kind mm. of like we had a nice lead almost. We didn't have to worry. And some of the other stations, like they were fighting to try to take our spot. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's it's all based on ad revenue. And today that that gets added onto the digital platforms like Facebook and um, podcasts and all of that. Uh, but it's funny, the last uh, network that I worked for was very unique because it was a cable network and mm -hmm. they offered news programming 24-7 as sort of like an add-on bonus. So if you're a cable or internet subscriber, you also get our 24-7 local news. And it was nice because they didn't depend on like the, that ad revenue model. They didn't have sweeps. Like, so it was actually way nicer to, to work for that kind of environment. Well, let, let's talk about that because that that is interesting. Because I, I um, you know, you you uh, explained the entire sweeps period and the <laughs> emphasis on ratings and, and stuff very well, which causes very different incentives. Um, when you're not on the ad model, what what what's the difference? How does that change how things are run? Well, so and and forgive me, I don't know like the exact specifics of our business model, but um, for the things that are subscription based, like say. Uh, cable or internet, basically the most of the revenue was coming in because people were subscribing. So they were subscribing mm. to have their a certain speed of internet and um, and certain amount of channels and and all of those packages helped create a, a a business model in which they could provide on top of that this extra twenty four seven news network. And so mm. we were a part of a part of that. But basically, we weren't the bread and butter of the company. Um, and most of these other affiliates, that's that's what they run on. It's like ad sales, and so they're really dependent on on those relationships. Uh, and in the local news markets, it was interesting to see because the the ads and the commercials are so different, right? So you'll get like the local mattress guy who's buying ads, <laughs> and like the local you know tile shop or fan shop. And like we all get to memorize the commercials and we remember like the phone numbers because they're so like they're so kitschy and like it's just so funny. Um, but yeah. And then as you get bigger, you have like the main, you know, the big commercials. Right. So you're, you're getting very different sort of like, um, you know, ads and yeah. I, I'm sure the economics change quite a bit. Uh, but but I wonder uh, like. You know, I, I imagine like things have changed significantly because I, I actually haven't watched television or like local news in like 20 years. Right. Like I well, mostly because I, I don't pay attention to the news anymore, but I, I haven't had like a TV antenna or anything or cable or anything like that for many, many years. Um, like, has that industry been shrinking or is it just me? What, what what's what's been going on over there? Yeah, I mean, people are cutting the cord. Our our ratings and our audience counts are 
nothing compared to what they were in like the 80s and 90s. I mean, it's mm-hmm. truly I remember I remember hearing a statistic that here in Los Angeles there are, you know, the t- the the five main stations and they used to get they used to compete for like a million viewers a night and now they're lucky if they get 100,000. I mean, it's wow. literally like there, there, there aren't as many people watching. Young people are not watching. Um, they're programmed to consume everything digitally. So they don't have that sense of, you know, sitting at 530, sitting down or even cooking and like having the news in the background, right? It's just a totally different lifestyle and sort of um, pattern of consuming news. Uh, so it, yeah, it has changed a lot. And um it's funny because when you start in the industry too, you get so nervous, right? Because you're thinking about the audience. And I remember being in like the small market and I started in an area called Palm Springs, which if I don't know if your viewers are familiar with Palm Springs, but it's a massive retirement community. Like, <laughs> oh, like I would say 70% of the people who live in the Palm Springs area and watch news are retired. So guess what? They sit down and they watch the news. So I would go to the grocery store and, you know, this, this old man would be like, Oh, I loved your story on whatever. And I was like, (laughs) Oh, people are watching. And then I moved up to another market where that's like, you know, much bigger, lots more people and families and no one would know, you know, anything that I did because they're like, Oh, you work for the news. Yeah. I don't watch that. Yeah. No, I don't, (laughs) I don't watch the news. And so it's funny how that's changed. And so for sure, like it's honestly helped though, because you end up you end up feeling and at least i did as a reporter toward the end of my my tenure in this side of the business that like like you feel like no one's watching you feel like you've put in all this work and i don't even know how many people will see this so it kind of helps with no longer being nervous because there was a point in my career where i would get on camera and i was like oh my god I don't know how many people are watching me and like, I would get nervous, you know? And, uh, and then at, by the end I was like, there's probably two people at home, Bob and Sheila, they're sitting, <laughs> getting ready to go to bed. They're retirees. Like I'm not nervous about Bob and Sheila watching me and writing me notes about my hair or whatever. So yeah, it's funny how like you go kind of through this transition. Well, so Hey, you're, you're obviously transitioning out and doing kind of your own thing. Uh, what what is your opinion of all the you know people that are sort of creating creating their own content? Uh, obviously, you're planning to do that yourself, but um, do you see any shortcomings or do you see any uh, you know good things about them? What what's your general opinion about like the PewDiePie's of the world that are you know reading their own news on on YouTube or whatever? I mean, I believe in free markets, and so I think that you know if you provide value to an audience and you get a big mm-hmm. following, then good for you. Um, you know, a lot of the people that are really popular on in the viral world, like they have massive YouTube followings. Like I would personally never consume those types mm-hmm. of videos. I mean, because we live in a world where people are you know going viral for sitting in a bathtub eating like cereal around them, right? And that that video gets like 2 million hits. Um, And then there are people creating, you know, really interesting content with food or with makeup. I mean, the sky's the limit. I think it's really cool how the internet has democratized media in that sense. But it is, it means like anyone can basically create a content channel. Everyone's fighting for those ad dollars and for views and to to do something that's compelling and interesting. Um, So it's a little bit of both. Like I... I truly just, um, I never necessarily intended for coin stories to grow and become a full-time thing, but it kind of caught on with an audience and I wanted to continue doing it and I wanted to grow it. And I felt like there are more people who could benefit from learning about Bitcoin and how our monetary system worked. And I wanted, Mm -hmm. like, I just felt like I know what it's like to not understand. And I feel like my life has changed ever since I did understand. It's changed the way I look at my future. It's changed the way I look at my past. It's changed the way I look at all the problems that exist. So if I can help others go down that journey, I want to. Um, And I think it's empowering being able to create your own content and no longer care. Like, I don't have a boss anymore. I don't have to worry. I can put my opinion out there. You know, after 10 plus years of reporting on stuff, I've developed some opinions. Maybe I want to share some of them, right? And I don't have to worry. So um, maybe I'll fall flat on my face. That's certainly a possibility, but I would rather go out on my own and take the risk and fail than wonder, you know, what would have happened if I had taken the risk and just sit and continue this this job that I'm not as passionate about anymore. Well, so um, multiple directions we can go right now. Uh, but one thing I, I wanted to ask you about is, um, there is sort of like an ad-driven model that is very prominent online. And one of the things that excites me about the Bitcoin network is that that doesn't have to be the only 
model. What are your thoughts on sort of like paid for content or things of that nature and how that changes sort of like the incentives around the content itself and how it's delivered and so on? Well, I think obviously content creators have to make an income somehow. So that was really, I mean, when I ultimately took the plunge and decided to leave my network, that was my biggest concern and worry and question is like, how mm-hmm. do I monetize this content that I'm really passionate about? Um, I, I'm excited to say I have my first sponsor, which is the Bitcoin conference, which is sponsoring <laughs> coin stories. Um, and I have some opportunities and conversations happening for other companies that are within this space that want to support my work. But, you know, it's it, it really is a, a difficult space to navigate, especially for someone who's never done it, especially on their own, just trying to monetize their own material. But number two, I also just want to be really careful because I am a big believer that you should never promote something that you wouldn't use yourself and that you don't, you don't understand the business model or you don't know and, and, and believe in. And so for me, I just, you know, this space can be very uh, critical of people and like what (laughs) they do or what companies they partner with. And it's, you know, like, of course you have to make money. And so hopefully some of the companies that I partner with are companies that I will be able to continue trusting and believing Mm -hmm. in. And, um, and certainly that's like top of mind for me, because I'm sure you get this, Jimmy, I get reached out to by like 30 people trying to partner with me for tokens and some things that I really don't understand or brand new baby companies. And who knows, maybe one of those companies will become like the best exchange Mm -hmm. ever, but they're like, here, we'll pay you. And like, i I'm, I'm very wary of all that because I would never mm. want to tell someone to go to a site or trust a, essentially an online bank and then lose their money or get hacked or anything. So it's it's an area that I, I believe that people should be able to make money and monetize. Mm. But like it's mm. also for me personally, I'm trying to navigate it in a way that I believe in and, and maintains integrity. Yeah. And that that's definitely something I've encountered and you know, I, I've told so many people like, yeah, I, I just say no to almost all of it because it, like you can only burn your reputation once. And once it's burned, it's gone. Like you're no one's going to trust you again. So yeah. um, that's a very important point. Um, but regarding sort of like, uh, you know, having content creators be paid directly instead of through ads. Um I mean, like, uh, I, I know you're working on like a course and stuff like that. And I, you know, I, I think that's great because you're actually creating content, but you know, there's sort of like this expectation by a lot of people that all content should be free for some reason, which makes really no sense to me. Um, what, what's your response to those people that are like, Hey, like, why are you charging money for this course? I should be getting like, they, they almost, I don't know. Do they seem like entitled brats to you? What's the deal? (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because that was the first time that I experienced the sort of trolling that I think um, that people in the space have experienced before. And, um, you know, my response is just that everyone has a different learning style. And as Bitcoiners, you should believe in free markets and for value and goods and services to be priced based on what they offer and who's willing to to purchase them at a certain price, right? Um, I think that some people have the time and have the learning mentality to want to go on YouTube and learn how to play guitar or go online and do a whole fitness program and get really into shape. And I think other people want to save time and have like interactive guidance and hire a guitar instructor or a fitness Mm. trainer. And I think there's no right or wrong. Um, I love the free resources that are out there. I've used most of them. I've watched most of them and consumed most of them. And they were excellent. Some of them were excellent. Um, But also, you know, it's, it's a rabbit hole and you, you go from one video to the next, you don't know really where to start. It's kind of, there's a, there's definitely a learning curve, especially when you're brand, brand, brand new. Um, I also think for people who deny that there's a gender gap, then you haven't been to one of these events. I mean, you haven't been to the Bitcoin (laughs) conference, certainly. You haven't been on Twitter. Uh, I I really am sad that there aren't more like-minded women who want to invest and protect their savings. Um, And so, and the last thing I'll just say about it is, you know, Pomp has been running a very successful course that costs a little bit more money for um, many months. And he has amazing alumni who have wonderful testimonials, some of whom have gotten hired in the business. And they're all still connected to each other through this like large Slack community that he's formed. And he didn't get flack for it, you know, and he uh, recruited me. He thought I would be 
thank thank you, Pom. He thought I would maybe be a good instructor because I have experience being an educator and being a public speaker. So he recruited me for this um, course because he doesn't have women enrolling in his. He maybe gets a couple, but really it's like 99% men. And the companies also would say, hey, Pomp, like we love the people we're hiring from this, but like, where are the girls? Where are the girls at, right? <laughs> and I think I think his you know line of thinking was a woman might attract women. A woman instructor might attract women. And so I was super grateful grateful when he recruited me. And then, you know, it's sort of, yeah, there was like a firestorm that happened of some people deciding that you can't charge for it. You can't say you're a woman, you know, whatever. And I'm just blazing forward. I really believe in it. The women that I have in the workshop are amazing. They're incredible. They're from around the world. Um, some of them know about Bitcoin. Some of them are brand new and we're helping each other and we're all in a learning process. I still have things to learn. And so, um, you know, I just believe in free markets. Like, don't judge people before, you know, you really understand what their mission is. My mission is to bring in more people and help them learn a little bit faster. Well, I mean, even even if they disagree with your mission, it's like, why are you complaining about a product you're never going to buy? It doesn't make any yeah. sense to me. Uh, and, you know, like when, when I did my course, you know, there were people complaining, oh, Jimmy's charging this many thousand dollars or whatever. Oh, I'm really? Like, oh, yeah. I, I, but at the very beginning, lots of people, I mean, I think Cobra still like complains about it once in a while, but it, it's just kind of like, what? why are you complaining? You're not buying it. By the way, Jimmy, I just want to say, um, I paid, I think it was like $500 to go to Saifedean's carnivore dinner. Like I paid $500. <laughs> I met you. It was the best $500 I've ever spent. <laughs> I could care less about the damn steak. I got to meet Saifedean and get him to agree to my podcast. I got to meet you. I got to meet Preston Pish. I got to hang out with Max Kaiser and Stacy, I was like, this is amazing. I'll pay for this any day. Like, <laughs> let me spend my $500. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and this is something that, that really bugs me because a lot of people kind of feel entitled for like content to be free. Yeah. Information wants to be free and all that or whatever, but there are people that want their handheld a little bit and you yeah. know, like wh however much money it costs, it's probably going to cost them more to not get into Bitcoin. So I, I don't see why you should complain about it. And I, I uh, and you know one one of the uh, one of the coolest programs I think I did with my course was uh, I partnered with uh, Elizabeth Stark and we got a bunch of companies to sponsor like female dev scholarships, which uh, a lot of those women are now in the industry as coders, um, and that that's a very good thing. We got more coders, and that's like how can you complain about having more coders? I, I really don't understand that. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to, uh, you know, give you a chance to rant about that a little bit. Um, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Well, so uh, regarding sort of like this, uh, the, this foray into, uh, you know, Bitcoin, what, what are your goals? What are your aspirations? What, what, what do you want this community to become more like as you teach people about Bitcoin? I really just want to bring in more of the general public and people who are a bit skeptical because I relate to that. I just remember mm -hmm. myself in 2017 when I first heard about Bitcoin and you know, I consider myself someone who's educated, who's also who also knows a little bit about a lot of things because I was a reporter. So I'm getting thrown in on stories about anything and everything. So I've obtained a little bit of knowledge in like all these random areas of life. And and I just felt like it's internet funny money. I'm scared. I'm, I don't know. I could, I could lose it. And so I just, I feel for all those people out there who are looking at it and looking at the price go up and maybe feeling like it's too late, maybe, you know, worried that the technology can somehow be compromised. And, um, I, I just, I really want to use the skills that I've built over the last 10 years of reporting and communicating messages and simplifying complex topics into something that's digestible for a very general audience. And I want to use that to make people more familiar with Bitcoin. Um, you know, obviously the space needs more women, but it just needs more of everyone. It needs more people from the general public who start to say, oh, hey, I recognize that something's going wrong with my dollar. I now maybe understand a little bit more about what's happening with the Fed and why there's this like, you know, problem with wealth inequality that's growing and exacerbating. And the government seems to just be throwing money around and nothing's getting fixed. It's getting worse and worse. And I want to help people through that process. So um, I will hopefully do that through courses and speeches and appearances on news and my podcast and whatever way I can. You know, I... 
I, to say that I'm not nervous and worried that it won't work out, that would be a lie. I, I don't know. I've never gone out on my own. So, you know, this is a huge gamble, but I believe in it. I do. Like for me, I was always stressed, like I mentioned about my finances and my future and feeling like I'm going to have to work until I'm dead. I see that kind of suffering that my parents have been through. And, and until I learned about Bitcoin, I just didn't think there was any, there's, there's no way out. It's like you either mm. get rich or die trying, right? Like you, it, <laughs> there, seven, there's, yeah. not, there's nothing else. So, um, you know, I'm just passionate. I want more people to, to understand it and not feel like it's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, I tweeted at like one of the politicians today, like, Hey, let me help you learn about Bitcoin and response Ponzi scheme, you know? So We've got a lot of we've got a long way to go. So um, yeah, hey, that the, those are all great things, and it, it does seem like you have this passion to you know educate the public and uh, get them more towards Bitcoin, and you know hopefully like get them to understand what the heck is wrong with the current monetary system. Yeah. Um, so can you can you uh, this well so. You you mentioned something that I found really interesting, and this is something I went through as well when I left the corporate world and started teaching and doing doing stuff like that. Tell me about like your decision to go off on your own, right? Because you you've been in a pretty you know you've been climbing this ladder, and you know you you've gotten fairly far in your industry, uh, and you're choosing to walk away from that into a completely new venture. What was that decision process uh, like and what made you want to do it? And, you know, like, how are you thinking about it, I guess? Oh, gosh, oh, that's such a loaded question because it was <laughs> definitely I, it's it's something I've been thinking about for a while. Um, you know, I will say this. My industry has obviously changed a lot with regards to just the technology and the media landscape and mm -hmm. social media and all that. But I also just see this growing distrust in the news in general. And the thing that started to worry me within my reporting career is that sometimes when you have to just say both sides, you know, like, oh, this guy said this and this guy said this and here you go, audience, you decide. <laughs> I started to feel like I was almost doing a bit of a disservice because I felt like I know this guy is wrong or I know like this guy, like I don't trust this guy, but at the end of the day, right, you just have to present both sides and you're the neutral person in the middle communicating the message. Um, but, and I don't know if this has to do with also just the way our, the direction our country was headed in. But, you know, I don't I just grew more and more distrustful of politicians. I covered them for so many years, you know, elections and political offices from totally small and local all the way to covering the president. And mm. I just feel like even though the American system is better than many other government systems around the world, it is flawed in the sense that it's so ripe for corruption based on money. Like people really need to get reelected. They need to make certain parties happy and they need to, you know, give the public, the voters that lip service, but not the opportunity cost of what they're actually going to be voting for. And I just feel like there's so many politicians who maybe they're great public speakers or they're charismatic or they fit a certain narrative, but they're, they're literally supporting and, um, sharing viewpoints that are detrimental to their constituents, you know, by promising everyone that we're just going to hand this money out or we're going to throw in billions more dollars to fix this problem isn't actually fixing the problem. Like these people don't understand economics. They don't, they, you know, maybe they have, they're funded by somebody. And so they have to like, you know, offer a contract as a friend of a friend or whatever. I don't like that. Like corruption is something that really bothers me because I feel like it screws the little guy. And I see my family in the little guy and I've interviewed the little guy. I've spent my whole career interviewing the little guy and it's not fair. You shouldn't be going into public service to become this fat, wealthy politician with all these, all this money in a massive house in Tahoe and, you know, millions in the bank and insider trading. No, you should go in because you want to be in public service. You want to serve the public. That, sh that shouldn't be a job that makes you a bajillionaire, right? And have <laughs> access to all the rich people. And so I came to kind of distrust the system over the last at least five years, honestly. I just felt like 
I understood sort of the people that watch the news and watch politicians and they're like, I don't trust this. Like, I don't, I don't believe in this anymore. I don't believe that you guys have my best interest at heart. Everything is getting harder and you guys are getting richer. And so I felt like I was a reporter, but I felt like I was developing all these strong opinions and I wasn't able to communicate them. I had to kind of like put up a wall and just say, here's what this guy said. Here's what she said. You guys decide. <laughs> but like, but I, I, but I have this passion that's growing. That's like, no, this guy should be called out. You know, this guy should be called out. And it's hard to do in like a, in a, in just a small reporting environment. And I think it's, um, I think that's why also it's given rise to a lot of the opinion networks because people mm. now are, are starting to fling these, these around and some of them are based on research and truth. And some of them I think are just based on trying to get views and clicks. And, um, yeah, so that helped my decision in the sense that once I learned about Bitcoin, I was already feeling like I'm not fully being myself. Like I'm, mm. I'm, I'm masking a layer to myself and I want to share more about what's wrong with the system. But as like a network, you don't, you have to still have access, right? You have to be able to sit down with some of these political people and you don't want to anger them too much. And, and I, I'm going to call you out. Like I've always had that personality of like, if you're doing something wrong, I was like the, in my first market, I, um, I was nominated for an Emmy in my first market for an investigative piece I did about a mayor who it was like the scandal at city hall. And he was taking essentially bribes from developers and cashing in and making and voting based on like the developer paying him. That guy ended up getting indicted on 30, three counts of public corruption. And I was chasing after him. Like I was like, you, you can't do this. Like, what are you doing? Um, I've always had that personality where I just want, I'm like a watchdog. Like I want to stand up for the average person because it's not fair. And in America, it should be fair. If you're going to work hard, if you're going to be a good person, you should be able to have a path, right? Like you sh the system shouldn't be rigged against you. And I think let the free market, you know, decide after that, but don't rig the system. Don't make it crony capitalism. Don't let some people at the top just give to whoever they want and are friends of friends. Let it be a fair system. Let it actually be a free market. And I think we haven't had a free market in a very long time. Well, so given all of this, it, it well, first of all, I want to point Sorry, out- I like went on a, I went on a tangent, huh? <laughs> well, well, so it, it sounds like Bitcoin changed you to some degree, or it, it, it was part of your transformation as a reporter, um, you know, from somebody that was more into sort of like, uh, you know, presenting things objectively to becoming more of an advocate. Um, that, that there's sort of like a, a five-year arc that, you know, has culminated in you sort of like, uh, you know, going off on your own. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit. What, where, uh, when did you just sort of like decide, okay, and you know what, I really need to leave this industry, but you know, like, what am I going to do? How, how, how do you even decide stuff like that? Um, it honestly happened... I think after my podcast started to really get an mm -hmm. audience and I was getting a lot of positive feedback and people were asking for more and uh, people were reaching out saying, I'd like to partner you or support you and create more content. So I kind of, I think I saw a path in that, mm. in that time. And, and obviously what you mentioned is, is the most important aspect. So if you're a reporter, you have to be objective. So I couldn't take a stance on Bitcoin. In fact, like I did a couple of stories and obviously I had to present the opposing side, right? I had to present the economist that's like the, the boomer that's like, this, this is bad, you know? And I'd be like, oh, okay. Um, and, and, and so again, it's like I was becoming an advocate. I believed in this so much and believed in the power that it had if it did succeed. So it was very difficult for me to, to continue to be objective. So, you know, my um, reporters tend to work on contracts. So you work for a specific mm. period of time. So I could basically either continue and like have another contract extend, or I could step away and just say, instead of signing my life away for another however long, I need to walk away and like try this. And, and if it's now, it might be harder in a year or two. So I want to do it now. Um, I really believed in it. And I thought that, you know, I'd rather try now and then decide later. I'm, you know, time is always this most scarce 
scarce thing. <laughs> In addition to Bitcoin, time is very scarce. So you want to use it when you have it. And so I decided to, to make the jump. But you're right. I think what you said was very poignant. I've had this kind of five-year journey where part of me um, thought about even going into politics. Like I was so frustrated with the stuff that I was seeing around me as a reporter. And uh, I just was like, I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference and make some change because I feel like there's so much corruption and inequality around me. And I don't know what to do because I'm, as a reporter, I'm not fixing it. I'm not doing, I'm covering it, but I'm not fixing it. Well, so let's talk about that because Bitcoiners are sort of getting a little more political the last few months. So um, (laughs) can you, can you tell us uh, like for, for those of us like me (laughs) that haven't like voted in 10 years and, you know, haven't paid attention to politics and, you know, however long, um, what are the main things to know? Because you, you keep saying words like corruption and bribery and money and things like that. It does seem like that's a big part of the equation. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, I just think that, you know, at least in our country, lobbying and campaign money is very, very powerful and it talks, right? So you could go into the system with the best of intentions. And I think that some people do. But then you have uh, people throwing money at you that obviously you're going to feel like you owe them something. And maybe mm-hmm. it's, in, it, you know, it's implicit and it's not necessarily an explicit quid pro quo, whatever. But, you know, this, the more that you start accepting money, which is necessary in order to get elected, I think you now have interests who want you to behave or vote in a certain way. And mm-hmm. so I, I wish that our system was more based on just people accepting donations from like the average individual. But like as you start to you know explore some of these packs and these massive organizations that are just they just keep the establishment going on both sides. Um it's just we we enter into, into a system where unless you have the money, like it's it's very hard to to steer to move the needle in a certain direction. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's really concerning to me, and I think that Bitcoin, to me, felt like an an opportunity to equalize some of that and to redistribute some of that and. I think it empowers people because it removes sort of the power of the government. I think that every year the government's been able to get away with, you know, taking more and more and more power and spending more and more money. And people, it's kind of like that situation of when it happens gradually, you don't notice it. And then you pull out, you know, 10, 20 years and you're like, whoa, my taxes went up how much? But like every little percentage is like, oh, yeah, well, it's like only a 0.5% increase here and there. All of a sudden, you know, you're giving away more than half your income to taxes. And it's like, how did we get here? How did we, mm. how did, how did this happen? You know, and each person is gradually. And I don't know if you've noticed this, Jimmy, but I swear in politics, it's like you fail up in private industry. If you screw up, if you misspend money, if you have a scandal, you probably lose your job, right? Maybe mm. you even are criminally prosecuted in politics. It's like, no, you just get a promotion. You get even more money. You get like, <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just like, how does our system work this way? Um, and I do, I say, I say corruption because as a reporter, I've really covered that a lot. Uh, the same scandal that I covered in Palm Springs, almost like, like mirroring, I covered seven years later here in Los Angeles. Seven years later, same situation. Developers coming in, they want you to vote a certain way. Turns out uh, the councilman is charged by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office for potentially taking bribes. And um, another councilman here in Los Angeles, former board of supervisors, a kind of county board of supervisors member, charged on bribery and it's like, why does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening? You know, so so clearly there's something in the system and money is obviously something that's very attractive to people who want power. Uh, and, and I think that's very scary. That's one of the things that's attractive about Bitcoin, that it sort of removes that there's there is no government. There is no third party. There is no bank. It is it is now a system that's owned by no one and owned by everyone at the same time. But it's like people that that operate it and secure it. So I, that's what's really attractive to me, because I. I'm now very, very skeptical of government. <laughs> well, so how, how do you think uh, Bitcoin fixes a lot of this stuff? Because, you know, I, I didn't expect to go into a conversation about politics, but how, how do you think it, th- this changes uh, some of what you've seen? Like, do, does it change the incentive so that, you know, councilman doesn't take bribes anymore? What, what, uh, or does it remove, like, maybe even the concept of public property? What, what's, uh, what's the change that happens? I think at the core, what I like 
about Bitcoin is that it doesn't allow the government, let's let's say we were under the Bitcoin standard, you can't mm. just expand the supply. You mm. can't just expand the amount of Bitcoin and promise people a free lunch and start throwing money into a problem, whether it gets fixed or not, and have no accountability. I mean, that's the thing that I've seen the most. Um, in Los Angeles in particular, we have a massive homeless problem. And we spend more and more money every single year on homelessness, and the problem continually gets worse. And now they're throwing a ton of money primarily into these like housing projects. And those developers, I mean, literally the units cost like $700,000 a unit. <laughs> it's, it's really truly insane. And so clearly someone's making off with, with the taxpayer money. And, and so I don't like that sense of like, we just have basically a, a blank checkbook and we can write our problems away and I'm going to collect a salary of $300,000 a year and a pension and all that. I just think we need to rein all of that in and allow the private, like the free market to operate. Let supply and demand regulate things. Let interest rates be guided by the market. Don't artificially suppress them. Don't create asset bubbles and real estate bubbles. Yes, the rich will become richer if you do that, but the poor people and the people on fixed incomes, you're just making it harder and harder for them to achieve the American dream. So for me, I feel like we just need to return to um, sound money. And I never mm. understood that concept before I learned Bitcoin. <laughs> and my hope is that with something that is fixed and, and it has like a stable unit of account at the base layer can maybe start to correct some of these problems and not allow us to continually get into debt and continue to encourage people to just consume and borrow and borrow as opposed to saving and investing for the future and, you know, creating actual productive value. Um, so I, and I know that that's probably, you know, we're all a little bit altruistic and maybe this is a long way away, but I don't see a path to that kind of better world without Bitcoin. Like how, we're not going to go back to the gold standard. Maybe that's the other alternative, but Bitcoin, we're, it's, it's happening on its own. People are turning to it. People are making money by turning to it. They're opting out. They can transact around the world and it doesn't matter. Like the purchasing power of the dollars diving down it doesn't matter to us. Like, right. Mm. We're in, we're, we've created this new, um, like wilderness and we're flourishing and it's growing and it's the wild west. Like you said, like we're building this new world while you guys are in this, like you're, you know, surrounded by walls that you've built yourself and you're looking out at us thinking we're crazy, but actually we're inviting all of you into like this abyss, this like fertile land that we can create into something amazing and something based on more like fairness, right? I mean, I know I get a little loopy on this stuff, but like, I love it. Well, I, it does sound like a much better world as you describe it. Uh, what do you think like under a Bitcoin standard, um, like the role of reporters becomes? Um, because you, you do have, um, you know, more controls because you can't just print the money. All revenue kind of has to come from taxes and things like that. And you can't just steal from everybody through inflation. Um, what, how does the role of the reporter change? Because right now you are sort of like evaluating what's going on, sort of presenting to the viewer, um, you know, what, you know, both sides of an issue or something like that. Like how, what, what changes and how does that look say under a Bitcoin standard? Well, my hope would be um, that under the, the, a Bitcoin standard, the government would be more accountable. It would be smaller mm -hmm. and more accountable. And so I've always had the belief that if you're a journalist, you should hold political uh, members and officers mm -hmm. accountable. And so I, my hope would be that they wouldn't be so incentivized to kind of appease the people in political office who want the sound bites and want the airtime and provide them with the access to get that. I would hope that it's more of a system where if you get elected, it's because you're contributing value and you are spending the money with fiscal responsibility as opposed to just promising people free things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, that's that we have a long way to go. And not, I mean, I see it in some reporters, like not, not necessarily at places I've even worked at, but colleagues within the field. I see this like 
people, reporters enamored with people in public office, like, like they idolize them when you should be doubtful of anything they say. I don't care if they're red or blue. Like you uh-huh. should, you shouldn't be sitting here endorsing all these people. Um, just, you know, hold, hold all of them accountable, hold their feet to the fire. And I didn't see Like, I have not seen that in some newspapers recently. It's like, there's a, there's a side that they have chosen and they're going to promote that narrative. And it makes me sad because I don't think that's being a reporter. So I would hope that it comes back to something that's a little bit more, I don't know, impartial and, and balanced. Because, um, we, yeah, the world we live in now, it's hard to be impartial. <laughs> well, and I'm hoping that reporters get paid and you get, um, yes. you know, you do like a, <laughs> like an investigative report. And if people appreciate it, they you know, pay the person that made it instead of some corporate entity that like sort of, you know, paid the intern $30,000 a year or something like that, right? Like it, it, it does feel like there's a, there's the ability to go directly to the people. And now with Bitcoin, you can just sort of have, um, you know, very direct financial interaction with them without a third party, which is very different, right? Like if mm-hmm. you're, say somebody like Edward Snowden, you can leak the Pentagon papers and, you know, like get paid for it like that or, or, you know, what, or whatever the NSA was doing. It wasn't the Pentagon papers, but you know, you, you get what I'm saying. The idea that, um, there is sort of like this financial intermediary does sort of like put some limitations as to what sort of stories that you can cover. I would think like, have you ever, seen that in your career where like you wanted to cover something like I I've heard rumors about Jeffrey Epstein stories, right? Like, like reporters couldn't report on this. They, they had something and they couldn't, uh, because like their superiors were like, no, you're not doing this story or something like that. Like, are there things like that in the current reporting world that we just don't get access to? I mean, you don't have to say anything specific, but are there things like that? So I, here's what I will say, because I don't want to name any names or, or anything, but there was a, there was a time in my career, but I will say it was not the last place I, it was not recent, uh-huh. but there was a point in my career where I had a lot of information um, because I'm like a bulldog when, when you give me public records. I will find that one line or that one word or what, like I will, I will hunt it down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had tracked down a lot of very um, incriminating public evidence of a public official that was getting paid by someone and that someone was an advertiser for the place that I worked. Ooh. Um, so I put together everything and I had, uh, I had all of, I had like a binder. I had all the papers. I had people willing to go on record and the story was pretty much ready to go. And that person who was very powerful in the community basically threatened my station to pull advertising and Mm. said, you know, we're, I'm like, what is this story? And so I had, I was called into a meeting with like all the higher ups and this person. And I literally had all, like, I had like my binder of records and I had all the evidence of like people who were willing to speak and my questions about, you know, why this was the, why this relationship existed and um, we had this meeting and ultimately that story never, that story never ran. <laughs> and then I gave that story to a newspaper reporter because I was like, I've done all this work. So if you guys will do it, then do it. But that person also advertised in the paper. <laughs> and so the paper also didn't do it. And that reporter quit over that as well. Oh, and wow. I left shortly after that to another place. But, uh, but yes. Yes, it has happened to me. I was very frustrated in that moment because I felt like I had done so much work. And and here's the thing, you can't argue with public records that are just stamped, sealed, and delivered. This is this is a paper you filled out. This is a legal requirement. This is a legal paper. Um, and I've always been someone who believes that like you know, find the paper trail. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I was really disappointed. And um, I'm sure, you know, the team had their reason to do that, but I was very frustrated as a young reporter. <laughs> so that does happen. Maybe that doesn't happen as often under a Bitcoin standard, or if you're independent, like that's something that you're going to... Yeah, I will say I haven't encountered that in a long time, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it does happen. Uh, and I, and I'm sure that people, you know, it, not just in news, but like 
where does, where's the money coming from? I think that's why that's the saying, like, follow the money because the mm. decisions always are a result of where the money is coming from. So I, I hope under the Bitcoin standard that wouldn't have happened, but I don't know. Well, so here here's another question for you. So do you think the choice of story that you go after because of some restriction like that, like maybe changes for some reporters or that there's, I don't know, maybe a narrative within the news industry that's sort of like pushed a little bit because that's maybe the safer thing for them to be doing, or it's more incentivized by their advertisers or something like that, where maybe the American public isn't necessarily getting the news that they need, but like the news that the news media organizations want to feed you. I'm sure that exists a little bit, but I don't, I honestly really do still believe in local news in terms of just people um, who are working day to day in these newsrooms and are covering the really small issues from that micro level. It's, Mm -hmm. it's hard to be like biased and have some sort of massive agenda because the story just sort of is what it is on a small scale. I think once you get bigger, I think that could definitely be a concern and that can, that could happen. I think that, Um, you know, I never used to think about people's politics 10 years ago. I really didn't like I, I, in college, certainly I never knew if someone was red or blue or purple. I never thought about it. Mm. And now it's like very ever present, like this sense of this person feels this way. This person feels this way. This person has this narrative. This person has this narrative. And, uh, and I think for sure there are newsrooms where more people, are aligned with one view and other newsrooms where people are aligned with another view and some people within both newsrooms who feel like they can't speak up because they feel differently. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think it, I think it really just depends on the person, but I, I will say like, I really admire reporters, especially in broadcasts because it's a really hard job. Like if you're working the, the job of five people, you're doing your <laughs> best to like, you know, get the people. Cause it's not just like when you're a reporter for the newspaper where someone just needs to pick up a phone and give you a quote or maybe email it to you. No, you have to physically get them in person for however long. And you have to file the story within sometimes an hour or two. And you're just like running, 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 and you're doing your best and you're putting this like two minute piece together. You don't have time for like having an agenda, you know, it's just, (laughs) you're just, you're trying to get the sides and you're putting it together and you're presenting your live shot. And so they're, you know, I really admire reporters that have all of that up against them and they're doing their best. Um, So I, yeah, I just think it depends. Like I've always had a very strong moral compass and this is something that I love about you, Jimmy. Like I grew up in a religious family, faith and like a sense of right and wrong is very important to me, which is I think why once I started to feel like, oh, I want to speak up about some of these things because I think injustice is happening or I think something bad is happening. Like that's something that is just, it's ingrained in me and I can't hold it back, you know? And I think other people find it easier to just be like, yeah, this guy said this, this guy said this, like, here you go. I'm going to, you know, get my beer after work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that that that's very interesting that uh, that, you know, the, this moral compass is such a big part of what's driving you, you know, towards advocacy rather than, I guess, straight up reporting. Um, so I, so what are you, what are your plans for the next uh, next few months? And, um, you know, how, where where are you what are you planning to do, I guess, uh, to continue your pa- journey down the Bitcoin career path, I guess? Yeah. So, um, you know, there are a lot of question marks. The thing I know is I'm going to continue my podcast and hopefully continue to get some great guests. I would love to expand the conversations to more than just like the whole full backstory. Mm-hmm. I would like to, you know, create content that's a little bit more educational or topical driven um, with the news that's happening as Bitcoin grows in its mainstream adoption and news coverage. Uh, I'm partnering with Bitcoin Magazine and Bitcoin Conference to do a little bit of that. So I'm excited. I have this course with Pomp that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm doing. So I hope to be able to educate more people and bring in more women. Um, I'm going to be making some like conference appearances and speeches and appearances on the news. Um, so I don't have like a Nothing is structured the way that I'm used to in a, in a regular job, but I'm kind of, I'm trying to embrace that uh, and just saying yes to every opportunity. And I, you know, I, I don't have the kinds of amazing backgrounds that like 
I feel like all of you are such legends and I'm, I'm in the shadow of the legends. I'm just trying to do my best to take my skill set and educate people. And I certainly would never put myself on the stage of like, like you guys are on a different level. And I hope to someday just, just do, do work that makes you feel like, oh, she's, you know, she's helped this community in some way. I, I think you're suffering a little bit from imposter syndrome. All of us. Yeah, a little bit. So. Who, who doesn't have that? Who doesn't have that? Yeah. Uh, well, I, the, the thing is you put in the work and then you don't feel like an imposter anymore. So yeah. I, I, I think, I think you'll be fine. And uh, you, you seem not to be mentally allergic to hard work, which I know has caused a lot of people to fall. So um, yeah. that, that's great. Um, all right. So where can people find you? Where can people contact you? And uh, yeah, like, tell us about your stuff. Yeah. So please um, find my show on YouTube. It's called Coin Stories. I'm trying to get to 10,000 subscribers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then I'm also on all the podcast platforms. So like Apple, Google, uh, Spotify. Um, I'm on Twitter at Nat Brunel and I tweet up a storm about Bitcoin. Mm. And um, and then the, the workshop is underway. So I think it's probably too late for people to sign up, but the workshop for women is btcforwomen.com. And um, yeah, so thanks for having me.